Welcome to the serialized podcast edition of Paper Arrows, a presentation in six episodes of my master's thesis in geography at the University of California, Berkeley, based on field research I conducted in Honduras in 2000 and 2001. I am the author and narrator, Daniel Graham. Episode 2, Olancho, Honduras Through the Looking Glass. In today's podcast, I read Part 1, Otherness, Section 1, Olancho, Honduras Through the Looking Glass. This chapter of the story historicizes the construction of Olancho as a dangerous space. We specify the historical and geographical factors favoring the production of this narrative and discuss its utility to projects of surplus extraction. We also show that, whatever its origins, the trope of violent macho olancho also percolates up from below, animating an inverted version of the same discourse, one that lionizes olanchano masculinity and invites outsiders to get out, if they can. Part 1. Otherness. Section 1. Olancho. Honduras through the looking glass. In Olancho there are no political parties, and that land, because of its most beautiful appearance, could be described by the adage, it's a piece of heaven fallen to earth, were it not for the lack of culture of its inhabitants. Honduras' government newspaper, La Gaceta, August 14, 1868. The violence we see is the manifestation of all the violence that has historically been done to the inhabitants of Olancho. Political activist from Olancho, June 21, 2000. In Honduras, mention of Olancho calls for either hushed tones or raucous bravado. In the national media and in books designed for North American tourists, what few there are, books or tourists, Olancho comes across as Honduras's version of Texas circa 1900, a vast, lawless, violent cattle landscape on the nation's frontier. This frontier region of east-central Honduras has long been depicted by poets, local elites, and foreigners alike as a beautiful, productive El Dorado, but one cursed, as is so often the way with El Dorados by the cultural failings of its inhabitants. Among those who live in the capital city, a visit to the department of Olancho warrants admiration from one's peers, and transplanted Olanchanos, poor rural ones in particular, you can tell just by looking at them, will often receive a wide berth from self-respecting capitalinos on the streets of Tegucigalpa. The origin of Olancho's rough reputation is a complicated matter, but it can be explained in part as a result of a centuries-long set of power struggles between campesinos and landed elites, and between native Olanchanos and the agents and institutions of distant sovereigns, whether the Spanish crown or the Honduran central state government. As early as the 1520s, Spain's conquistadors engaged in bitter internecine struggles for control over the territory that was to become the Department of Olancho. 
The resources of interest to the Spaniards at the time were gold and slaves. But by the latter part of the 16th century, cattle ranching would begin to establish itself as the region's key industry. The indigenous peoples of the region noted the Spaniards' infighting, and perhaps perceiving weakness in this, killed 15 of the unwanted invaders in 1527. Honduras's first governor, Diego López de Salcedo, avenged the 15 Christians' death with a scorched-earth tour through Olancho that, according to a report filed by a harshly critical bishop, culminated in the murder of more than 2,000 Indians. This helped set the tone for Olancho's reputation for centuries to come. Subsequent massacres in 1700, 1865, and 1975 each of them precipitated by local subaltern groups' defiance of the central state's policies as they impacted Olanchano's land, cattle, tax burden, or freedom, would further solidify Olancho's distinction as the antithesis of cosmopolitan Honduras, as depicted by the central state in the pages of the government newspaper. In fact, and as we will see, the state permeates all geographic and political strata. The diametric opposition between Olancho and the state is more apparent than real. However, the rhetoric carries enough legitimacy in people's minds to produce a social fact of Olancho as anathema to the state. The setting apart of Olancho has become a powerful tool employed by various actors operating in the service of sometimes widely disparate projects. All the while, affinities exist that somewhat attenuate the repulsive forces that at times seemingly threaten to culminate in the calving off of Olancho from the Honduran state. Though landed and state elites often overstate the case of the region's difference from the rest of the country, Olancho's reputation for toughness and lawlessness is based on more than myth. When I first arrived in Honduras in September of 1996, the big news in the country, apart from the drought, was the signing of a peace accord by two feuding clans in the municipio, or municipality, of San Esteban Orlancho. For several years, members of the Turcios and Najera families had been killing each other with pistols, AK-47s, even grenade launchers inherited from the U.S. Contra War on neighboring Sandinista Nicaragua in the 1980s, all to the tune of 85 deaths. Church and military authorities presided over the armistice, One child from each family was made to sign the pact as a demonstration of the permanence of the arrangement. For insurance, a monument went up. In a conversation with me in 2000, a Honduran human rights worker who hails from San Esteban expressed her disgust with the military's presence at the event. For her, the military's participation was a denial of local autonomy and amounted to a publicity stunt meant to demonstrate the armed forces' power and social legitimacy an idea that galls her given the fact that it was the military who abducted and murdered her husband in the 1980s. But as Mark Bonta correctly points out, for many Olanchanos, outsiders and their, quote, law and order striations are welcome if they can help resolve the seemingly never-ending vendettas that they say threaten to rip their land apart at the seams, end quote, Bonta 2001. But such complexities do not make for good copy. The sanguinolent politics of 1990s Olancho inspired Costa Rican journalist-turned-novelist Oscar Núñez Olivas to write a fictionalized account of the San Esteban blood feud. Núñez titled his book Los Gallos de San Esteban. 
If the textual reference to avianthropy is too subtle, the cover of the first edition atones for that fact. It features two shirtless campesinos with rooster heads where human ones ought to be. This is far from the first instance in which Olanchanos have been represented as somehow subhuman, unworthy of the rich land they've inherited. In 1863-65, when patriotic Olanchanos rose up against the central state in defense of local autonomy, and overtly threatened to overturn the skewed landowning regime throughout Olancho and the rest of the country, the poor, shirtless indios of Olancho acquired the additional appellations of lazy, bloodthirsty, cowardly, stupid, and criminal, in the government newspaper. Before that, North American William Wells visited Olancho and commented on its sadly untapped potential. Quote, The glittering treasures of the soil must remain as they have been since the creation, until a race superior in energy and activity succeed to the inheritance. Wells, 1857. Since before Wells's time, the Olanchanos' lack of merit was frequently invoked in such a way as to demonstrate their unfitness to steward the land they occupied. In particular, attention was often paid to the ostensive laziness of Olanchanos. The argument most often tendered was of a kind with the environmental determinism that has been described by Glacken, Arnold, and others. Olanchanos lacked industry because they lived in a land of milk and honey that offered up its bounty too readily. Historically, accounts of Olancho and its inhabitants have tended to suggest that Mother Nature was casting her pearls before swine. There were, of course, variations on this theme, but even these tend to show that Olanchano's putative characteristics were better indicators of the intentions of Olancho's outside interpreters than of Olanchanos themselves. E.G. Squire, another North American envoy to Central America in the mid-19th century, had cause to tell a different story about Olanchanos than that which was generally told within Honduras. Writing at a time of heady excitement over the imminent construction of an interoceanic railroad across Honduras, though it would never actually be built, Squire, as the charged affairs of the United States to the republics of Central America, was interested in selling Olancho as an ideal investment opportunity for well-off Europeans and U.S. citizens. In extolling the natural riches up for grabs in Olancho, he suggested the long-running denigration of the region owed to the Spaniards' jealous protection of its most valuable land holdings. Speaking of Olancho, Squire wrote the following. Next to its herds of cattle, its principal sources of wealth are its gold washings. Nearly all the streams in the department carry gold of a fine quality in their sands. These washings were distinguished for their richness at the time of the conquest, and have ever since maintained a local celebrity. But the jealous policy of Spain was effectively directed to the suppression of all knowledge of the wealth and resources of these countries, and their condition since the independence has been unfavorable to their development. There can, however, be but little doubt that the gold washings of the rivers Guayape and Mangolil and their tributaries are equal in value to those of California and must soon come to attract a large share of attention both in the United States and in Europe. At present, the washings are only carried on by the Indian women, who devote a few hours on Sunday mornings to the work, living for the remainder of the week upon the results. Squire, 1870. 
Squire described the indigenous inhabitants of Olancho and the rest of Honduras in a positive light, and did so in such a pointed manner as to make obvious his object of attracting foreign investors to the region. Notwithstanding his description of Olanchana women conducting all the family's work for the week within a few hours of gold washing on Sunday mornings, Squire also insisted that the Olanchanos were hard-working people. These Indians, of Catacamas Olancho, are proverbial for their peaceful disposition and industrial habits. If the Indians of Catacamas and Squire's day were celebrated for their industry and passivity, this could only have been in relation to the more wild Tawakas who lurked nearby. Mining had declined in Olancho precisely for lack of labor after the freeing of slaves in the mid-1500s, and land prices were depressed in and around Catacamas for many years, due primarily to the perceived threat of Indian attacks. Bonta 2001 Just two or three decades before the time of Squire's original writing, the denizens of Catacamas, far from being recognized for their docility, captured attention with their decapitation of ten partisans of the central state during a violent tax revolt in 1829. Disregarding these details, Squire evidently thought of Honduras' native population in general as potential clay in the hands of white settlers. Quote, the existing Indian element in Honduras, left to itself, promises little or nothing for the development of the country, yet, with the introduction of an intelligent and enterprising people, their industry may be turned to good account. Frugal, patient, and docile, they have many of the best qualities of a valuable laboring population, and only lack direction to become an important means in the physical regeneration of the country. End quote, Squire. 1870. The denigration of Olanchanos by outsiders, especially after the bitter revolts of the late 1820s and the 1860s, should come as no surprise. It is hardly a unique phenomenon in the world. Scott has described civilizing and sedentarizing projects which were fairly common practice throughout Latin America during the colonial epoch and afterwards as attempts by the state to impose legibility on regions lying at the periphery of their control. The point is to make geographically and politically remote places and their populations more amenable to centralized control and to capital accumulation. Scott, 1998. When, and to the extent that, this territorializing project fails, the state falls to constructing the region's denizens as backwards and brutish, everything, in other words, that the colonizers are not. Apart from Scott's too simple view of the state, this makes some sense. According to Bonta, the Crown's representatives in late colonial Honduras were anxious to rope in the scattered populations of artisanal ranchers that peppered the valleys of Olancho. To the extent that they were able, they forced Olancho's ladinos, that's mestizos, and tribute Indians alike to settle in reducciones, thus making it easier for them to be taxed to become civilized. Bonta, 2001. Certainly, rural areas and people outside of Olancho also suffered at the hands of Spanish conquistadors and their post-independent successors. The method of domination, however, seems to have taken a different turn in eastern Honduras, where Olancho is situated, than it did in western Honduras. Martyred Chief Lempira, killed by the Spaniards in his native western Honduras in 1537, has come to be seen today as a symbol of national pride and sovereignty. 
Honduras's national currency is called the lempira, and school children throughout Honduras dress up as Indians each July 20th, which is Dia de Lempira, or Lempira Day. Meanwhile, no Eastern Honduran indigenous or popular leaders have yet been deemed acceptable material for co-option by the central state. The different treatment afforded to the native people, and later of Ladino peasants in Olancho, was probably partly a reflection of two apparently contradictory geographic realities. On the one hand, Olancho, with its vast fertile valleys and its famous Guayape gold, meshed better with Spaniards' conception of El Dorado than did the broken topography of much of the rest of the country. Conceiving of themselves as that, quote, race superior in energy and activity that would come to be invoked by Wells in the 1850s, the Spaniards feared and demonized the native population that stood in the way of their inheritance. On the other hand, and the importance of this should not be minimized, Olancho was out of the way. That is to say, through western Honduras lay the trade routes to major markets in El Salvador and Guatemala. Meanwhile, travel through Olancho to the east would only bring a person into the dense rainforest and boggy swamps of the Mosquitia, where the British had a foothold on the mainland. Given the great expense of overland transportation, the fact that the great market cities of San Salvador and Guatemala City lay in the opposite direction from Olancho cooled many colonial and independence-era notables alike on settling in remote Olancho. A scheme to open up Olancho's rivers to steamship transport in 1859 involved a promised homestead concession of 160 acres to those, quote, Europeans, such as Germans, Belgians, and Italians, unquote, willing to establish a colony in that department. Honduras and New York Navigation and Colonization Company, 1860. The New York Navigation and Colonization Company shared with the Honduran government a strong desire to make good on the tremendous economic potential of the region by opening it up to a less expensive mode of transportation. Quote, the present interior trade of Honduras appears extremely small and insignificant when compared with the vast resources of the country. This has already been accounted for by the non-existence of a proper communication with either the Atlantic or the Pacific coast. At present, not a single article is cultivated in Olancho, which would give a profit to the producer after paying the cost of transportation over the mountains. End quote. The plan fell through, however, perhaps due to the civil war in the United States. Thus, Olancho, though storied for its natural bounty, did not attract the great numbers of civilized homesteaders that the government would have liked to have settled there. Instead, a very limited number of huge estates rose up together with the small-scale ranching operations of the local indigenous people and of the mulattoes descended from the gold-washing slaves who had been freed by the new laws of 1542. So, for a time, church and crown, rather than develop Olancho's industry, satisfied themselves with levying and collecting heavy in-kind taxes on cheese and leather. The tithes of Olancho, los diezmos de Olancho, became a common phrase throughout Honduras with a meaning that pairs an arm and a leg with all the tea in China, an unjustifiably enormous quantity of goods tendered to a more powerful authority. Given all these factors, the people and the landscape in western Honduras more quickly became legible to colonial administrators than did Olancho. 
As urban Hondurans in Tegucigalpa and Comayagua turned their gaze increasingly westward to the trade opportunities there, little-known Olancho lay lurking behind them. When the newly independent Republic of Honduras sought to increase its revenues by demanding that Olanchanos begin paying their taxes in cash rather than in kind, however, war broke out. The demand was an onerous one since it implied that Olanchanos would now have to drive their cattle and cart their cheese all the way to El Salvador or Guatemala in order to raise the necessary funds, and the Olanchanos responded violently. The insurrection of 1829, in which the residents of Catacamas cut off the heads of ten of their antagonists, was ignited when the mayor of Gualaco, Domingo Sarmiento, refused the army's demand that he and the rest of the Gualaqueños give up their firearms. The reason for the army's anxiety over the Gualaqueños' weapons was the latter group's bristling hostility to the new tax law. Only when the president of the republic, Francisco Morazan, bravely met them on their turf and agreed to repeal Olanchano's tax obligations, was a peace treaty signed. Sarmiento, 1990. Though the written records are fragmented and at times contradictory, it seems that Olanchano's reputation for sloth came to be linked more consistently with that of savagery after this run-in with the state and another that would come in the 1860s. The central state's presence in Olancho, then, has historically been both sporadic and from the perspective of Olanchanos, overwhelmingly negative. This combination of neglect and violence has contributed to a tendency, highly valued among Olanchanos themselves, towards autarky and independence. Quote, the supremely local nature of life, unquote, exemplified by the calving off of numerous small municipalities in Olancho, Bonta 2001, has often put Olanchanos, both rich and poor ones, at odds with central state policymakers, right up to the present day. Without eliding other important, and in some cases related axes, class, gender, ethnicity, and kinship, for instance, we can say that in Olancho, an additional dipole sets the local off from the non-local. Both state and local actors have come to define Olancho by what it is not, namely, the rest of Honduras. And, somewhat like a hologram or a fractal, this local-non-local dialectic reproduces itself at diminishing scales. The distinction is drawn from below as well as from above. Appeals to a shared Olanchano identity tend to weaken in those instances when projects flying under the departmental banner conflict with the mores of people situated within their respective municipios and their constituent villages and hamlets. Within municipios, too, spatial conflicts sometimes attain between the cabecera, or municipal seat, and its satellite aldeas, or villages. Micropolitical fissures, at the inframunicipal scale, though, seem more frequently to burst along other lines of division, such as the aforementioned categories of class, occupation, party affiliation, and or kin, as we saw with the Turcios and Najeras in San Esteban. While the 23 municipios of Olancho share in common their marginalization vis-à-vis the rest of Honduras, as well as a collective memory of violent subjugation and occupation by the military, the Department of Olancho is anything but a homogeneous socio-political unit. As is the case throughout Honduras, there can be no question but that the municipio is the hub of Olanchano's spatial affinities. Political power in Honduras, too, devolves more to the municipal level than to the departmental level, 
where the governor is a titular sinecure who is hand-picked by the country's president. In a country that already has a weak central state, as Honduras does, the devolution of political authority to the municipal level implies that each municipio is an important component of the state, replete with agencies, often though not always, staffed by people born and raised within the municipio. This fact, of course, makes problematic any idea of a society against the state, Clusterus 1987, despite the obvious tension between local life and certain of the impositions people see as emanating from the state. This paradox, that of the municipio as both exemplar of the local and container of the local's opposite, the state, is not easily resolved. Conflicts between and within state agencies that belie characterizations of a monolithic state further complexify the problem, as does the temporal incoherence of rapidly evolving bureaucracies that wipe out agencies' institutional memories on a yearly basis. Local mayoralties and bureaucracies acquit themselves to various degrees in the eyes of their constituencies, from municipio to municipio and from moment to moment. On balance, Olanchanos tend to distrust the government and other perceived intruders, who may come from either within or outside the municipio or department. And, as we will see in the cases that follow, they develop both material and rhetorical repertoires for defense of what they perceive to be theirs. At the same time, it should be recognized that perceptions of the state, territorial techniques, and meaning itself are context-specific and highly mutable. The paired dialectics of local-non-local and local-state have lent themselves, in the case of Olancho, to heated contests over the labels that are applied to the department and its denizens. Olanchanos, sometimes the same person at different moments, will at turns reject and embrace the popular image of Olanchanos as being a breed apart. There are those discouraged souls who will sigh and confess, It is true, we are too violent. It's our lack of culture and education. Most Olanchanos, however, are quick to defend themselves and their paisanos and paisanas, countrymen and countrywomen. Sometimes this means denying the truth of claims that Olanchanos are any different from other Hondurans. Just as frequently, though, the approach Olanchanos take is to embrace the macho and wild labels applied to them and reverse the polarity, as it were, of the valorization given to such labels. This second, defiant approach reinforces a sense of Olancho as Honduras through the looking glass and has given rise to several slogans that Olanchanos have adopted over the years. One of these is, Soy Olanchano, y que? I'm Olanchano, want to make something of it? For some time, a sign greeted highway travelers entering Olancho from Tegucigalpa, República Libre de Olancho, Free Republic of Olancho. According to tradition, another sign read, Olancho, entre si quiere, salga si puede. Olancho, enter if you want, leave if you can. Or perhaps, Olancho, ancho para entrar, angosto para salir. Olancho, broad as you enter, narrow as you leave. With respect to these last two, Olanchanos can put up a lively debate about whether the difficulty in leaving owes more to the danger of suffering a violent end or of falling in love with the land and its warm and emotionally honest people. Even as Olanchanos handle their mala fama, or ill fame, with some ambivalence, 
So too it must be asserted that Hondurans at times confess at least a grudging respect for Olancho, treating it as something of a repository or distillery of Hondurans' primordial qualities, their masculinity in particular. Many male, and not a few female, Hondurans are fond of a rhyming refrain that celebrates their collective machismo. No hay pueblo más macho que el pueblo catracho del cual vengo yo. There is no manlier people than the Honduran people from which I come. If there were no Olancho, the self-styled manly men of Honduras would find this claim far more difficult to sustain. <laughs> 